Welcome back to the Marvel Movie Minute, a daily podcast in which we explore the films of the Marvel Cinematic Universe one minute at a time. In this, our fifth season, we are looking at Joe Johnston's 2011 film, Captain America, The First Avenger. I'm Andy Nelson from the True Story FM Entertainment Podcast Network. And I'm Pete Wright, and I'm actually the Colonel's new best friend. Today, we're talking about Minute 92, which begins with Peggy saying she'll fight with Steve and ends with Steve on his motorcycle. Back on the show, it's Jay Shepard. Hello again, Jay. Hey, howdy. Hey, howdy, hey. All right, so we're back in the whip and fiddle for a very brief end of this conversation. Steve seemed very resolute with his last, uh, at the end of the last minute, as he said, he's going to he's gonna get that, Johan. And, and here he says, I'm not going to stop till all of Hydra's dead or captured. And Peggy replies, you won't be alone. So... I just, you know, a thought on this. I mean, we know that, you know, Steve's motivation for joining is he wants to stop bullies. It's not necessarily about uh, killing Nazis. It's just about stopping bullies, you know, because he doesn't like anyone. Uh, he doesn't care where they're from. He just wants to stop bullies. Uh, does this sound um, a little more vengeful than we would normally get from Steve? Or does this kind of fit in line with all of that? I, I think it stays. I think it's in line with with what he's doing. I mean. I don't know that anybody comes into the movie cheering for Hydra. <laughs> sure, that's true. And and I I actually put a question mark at the end because today, who knows? But, <laughs> um, you know, I, I love 1940s films where the Nazis get their butts kicked. Whether yeah. it's this, whether it's Raiders of the Lost Ark. I mean, that is just good quality uh popcorn entertainment in my book like i will i will spend an entire saturday in a cinema watching those kind of movies so uh that's it it feels right because it's what uh i think what the audience wants yeah. as well at this point it's like you steve's just lost his best friend and he's like i'm gonna do what it takes to bring this down you know i'm gonna bur- i'm gonna burn them to the ground it's uh it's the speech from the untouchables except that yeah. he's uh He's he's playing Al Capone now, and but it's okay, <laughs> right? I this is actually interesting to me um, because I'm I'm a little bit broken for this scene. For years since I saw this movie, until we started prepping for this show, watching these one minute at a time, in my head, Peggy says, "You're alone," instead of "You won't be alone," and. It made total sense because the next cut after the briefing, Steve gets on his motorcycle alone and drives off into the woods. And so I had completely convinced myself until about an hour before we started recording today, when I watched this minute, that I was going to have something to talk about here that was relevant to the scene earlier when Steve was alone and how he's not afraid to take on everything, thinking, of course, why would they do that? He has things have changed in the third act and now he has a team. But I was really, really convinced that uh, that he said you're alone or she says you're alone and he was going to take on. That's a that's an amazing misreading of the film. Yeah, <laughs> but it it works. I mean, it it does. It provides it's a different context. Right. But yeah. it still works. It doesn't make you question like. Why would they be doing this, right? That, that's, because he's that's full of really such astute. grief. Like, of course he would go fight the world. He's going to burn the world down. And he, whether he does it with help or not, 
it sort of implies like you'll be doing this off the grid. If you're going to take this on, you're doing this off the grid. It's for you, right. That's so much better than me who accidentally put in a movie and when I hit play on my DVD player, it for some reason was on random sections. It would just... (laughs) It would skip chapters randomly. And I'm like, this is an interesting nonlinear story. Why did they choose to do it this way until about halfway through? And I'm like, wait, now they're showing the credits? What? You can, put, can, you, do, can you shuffle a DVD player like that? Obviously, the, the cheap Toshiba one I had wow. allowed you to do that. Well, because some people listen to uh, CDs in their, oh, in their, their DVD, DVD player. players. And so, yeah, uh, yeah you can that put it on might a shuffle. have been it. So you might have had it on a shuffle setting. That's a horrible. I'm going to try that actually with a with a Marvel movie and see how well it plays. <laughs> That's funny. Well, it I all depends on that. on how well they are, how good they are at their chapter stops. Like you know, I put some movies in, and it's like there's three chapter stops for the entire thing. I'm like, how are you doing this into three chapter stops? <laughs> and then there's some where it's like 50 chapter stops. I'm like, oh my god, you know, it's like every every like every scene gets its own chapter stop and it's it gets a yeah. little ridiculous so you just wait andy the next marvel release on dvd i'll bet the chapter stops will be exactly every 60 seconds maybe we should switch be, this this actually might help us move through this a lot quicker if we yeah. instead of doing marvel movie minute we do marvel, marvel movie, movie chapter, chapter. <laughs> <laughs> uh it'll be interesting to experiment and see how they how they do it yeah all right. Well, anyway, this is this final moment between the two of them. I, I, your read is very interesting, Pete. It's interesting that you kind of had had looked at it that way for so long. It feels like really negative in their relationship, though. For at this yeah. point, in for where Steve is so low, for Peggy to say, "Well, you're alone." I know. Like, Believe me, it makes no sense now, Andy. I get it. <laughs> It's the worst, especially now that I hear so clearly what she actually says. I'm like, what what idiot was watching this movie and believe? Oh, it was me. Yeah, I was (laughs) the one. (laughs) Well, what is interesting about this is it does sound I mean, uh, we know that. Uh, that the SSR and the allies have all been fighting Hydra. We've been watching it for the last, uh, you know, 10 or so minutes and really the entire film as the war rages on. But I mean, there is this element also here where it's like, one, you're, you've already been kind of doing this. Like, isn't this what you're, you and the team have been doing is going after Schmidt and trying to stop all of, uh, Hydra. But at the same time, it also makes it sound like once again, Steve is making a decision without getting any consent from any of his superiors at all. Like, you know, and, and I think that it's, it's perpetually a funny thing with Steve where he's this soldier, but always is like disobeying orders or just doing things on his own. And, you know, uh, it's better to uh, beg for forgiveness than ask for permission sorts of things. And here it feels like the same thing, even though this is exactly what they've been doing. So it's, it's kind of funny that he comes to that. I think it's also because, you know, he was not a soldier. He wanted to be a soldier for such a long time and they kept dismissing him. So, you know, he was already finding ways around the system by what changing his birth record or his vaccination cards or whatever it was. So he just would go from um, uh, recruiting station to recruiting station to try to get in. So this is still really just his modus operandi, right? It's like, Okay, you're going to tell me no. I'm going to go around you, but you don't have to know about it. And there's plausible deniability in it, you know. And then I can just be alone, right? He can be on his own. Yeah. But but now we get a he's now that we've been through the montage, and now that Pete has watched the actual movie again, and here's what they say: um, we get this example in the briefing room 
where Steve gets to flaunt the fact that he is a uh, sort of a, a rebel in terms of, you know, the authority hierarchy and just flaunts that he's Captain America and says, why can't we do this thing? I think we should go do this thing. And the implied response is, OK, I guess Steve said we're going to do it. So we're going to go ahead and <laughs> we're going to go ahead right. and do that. It, it, it's that classic where somebody asks a question, you know, hard cut yeah. to the thing happening. To action. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah it, it, which is a nice little chuckle, of course, because you're you're like, oh yeah, why not? Look, and what does that mean? Go knock on his front door, and then all of a sudden, you know, Steve's yeah. on this, you know, big burly motorcycle here. Yeah, I, I, I mean, we're definitely jumping to the end of the minute, but uh, yeah, that that is absolutely the thing. It's like the way that they treat that, I think, is very much um, a, a tropey way to kind of you know give us the response to this this position that steve is taking now i mean that's the thing in the bar here it does feel like he's now not just committing to fighting johan schmidt and hydra but also it feels like i'm committing to leading this thing and making and and being the the person lead, taking charge to make it to bring bring them down well and and when we get to can we can we talk about the briefing yeah, so so we're going into the briefing room, and and here we have uh, you know Colonel Phillips leading this briefing about what is happening and kind of giving us a sense of Schmidt and what he's up to now that he's had a chance to interrogate Doctor Zola. I love the way this scene is put together. First of all, we open on Colonel Fiddlepot's uh, back, and he's he clearly has a lot of information and authority in the room, right? And all the attention, especially because of the way the camera is set in this scene, looking up at his back with the giant North Atlantic map on the wall, it is a shot of authority. This man knows what he's doing. And then he turns. He's aggrieved. He uh, he's talking about things that are hard. It cuts to the next cut. If you if you freeze it at second 17, you actually see that Steve is there. But it happens very fast as Stark walks in and we pan away from Steve. So he's out of frame as as Stark is talking about we are outgunned, outmanned. I could go on and things are going to be hard. And all of the authority is about the real smart guys in the room pan across. Then we get some some silent Steve, silent Steve. And when he turns and the camera goes on him and he says after right after he says off screen, why not? All of the authority changes in the room. The way this scene is blocked, it it is it is a the weirdest like one swing tennis match uh, in this thing where all the authority changes from Colonel Fiddlepot to Steve. And the next thing we know, he's on a motorcycle executing his plan. And I think he's that's not going to throw away a shot. He's not. See? There you go. Jay picks up the shot. Jay picks it up. And I, I think it's really brilliantly uh, blocked and, and sort of choreographed in the way they, they talk around the room. Uh, they let the howling commandos have some say. Um, and they're, they pass pictures around. Pictures are important. Dum-dum gets a sigh. Um, you know, things are clearly hard. I, I I look at pictures of the Alps and go, I'm I'm wondering which mountain that is. Yeah. I wonder if I can identify that for my MCU location scout uh, <laughs> right. website. I love that that's your, your focus is. Yeah. Of course, single-minded. I'm yeah. looking at the single maps, right? Yeah. 
Those are a lot uh, of lines on the map. There's what so are those lines. Uh, all the heads turn, right? At 48, you know, dum-dum turns. And then you get the full table shot where all everybody is looking at camera coming from Steve's perspective as it's pulling back. It is brilliant. I love, I love, I love that shot. Why not? Well, what what we see throughout this is, uh, you know, the leaders here. I mean, really what it's boiled down to, the 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 course of this montage that we just wrapped up is the core team of people who really have proven themselves as the ones who can focus on Hydra while the rest of the armies are focusing on the Nazis, right? We have at this point, it is Phillips and, uh, and agent Carter and the howling commandos and Howard Stark and Steve. And that's really the core team that we have here that is focusing on this. And what I think is nice about the way that the scene plays is Colonel Phillips is kind of leading the meeting. He's talking, trying to get some sense as to what they can do. And Howard comes in with with his thoughts. You mentioned that we see Steve there. And what we always see Steve doing through the bulk of this is he's looking at paperwork. Like he's, he's studying. I don't know. I don't know if he's looking at the photos of the Alps. I don't know if he's looking at some other things. We only ever see the back of what he's looking at. So it's hard to say. But this speaks to, I can't remember which uh, one of our previous guests talked about this nature of Captain America. You know, one of the things that he's is his biggest strengths is that he is a brilliant strategist. And I think that's really what this scene does, at least the way that I read it, is they're all kind of thinking about what they can do and talking about what they can do and where is it and all this sort of stuff and what Hydra has. And what he's thinking about is like actually putting this plot into pay, into place. And once um, once Marita mentions the whole idea of knocking on the door, that kind of triggers it for him. And And I love that it plays like this is a person who doesn't say anything because he is strategizing. And when he is going to speak, it's something that people are going to want to listen to. I mean, when this character, you know, he can throw his shield, he knows exactly where it's going to be and how to throw it. And like, where does that come from? That's not part of his super soldierness. So, yeah, I think that's something that's built into Steve's DNA. I think he I think he also demonstrates his ability here as a character to simplify things. Right. Like he is if there is a way if Steve wasn't there, you can kind of see how this brain trust would have made things complicated, like a complicated cockamamie thing. And Steve just said, let's just get on a bike and go knock on the door. Like, we'll just take some guns and throw some punches and throw the shield around a bit. We'll be fine. That is the simplest sort of straight line solution uh, to, you know, uh, accessing the evildoer. And I think that's one of the things that Steve ends up kind of doing a lot. Like, let's go back and open up, uh, you know, the beginning of Winter Soldier. And Steve jumps out of a plane into the water with no parachute and then beats up a bunch of guys. That's just what he does. He picks the shortest line between two points and takes it because everything else is superfluous, right? I mean, he's He's about that economy of action, um, which, I mean, it's it's really refreshing in in films that, you know, I mean, I, I love a good heist film. I love a film that confuses you with its complexities. But I think that's what makes this film feel so good is that. It's supposed to it, it takes place in, a, in, in ostensibly a simpler time. Mm-hmm. and. It doesn't really overburden anything. I mean, as people start to get to that point where it's like, okay, well, this could get really complex. You know, other characters just go, well, we're just 
we just need to do this. Let's just go this way. Let's go knock on the door. And yeah. and then it happens. It just well, goes from A to B to C to D and on. I mean, you said it. Like, it is enormously satisfying to watch guys punch Nazis. And that that is the sort of the point of this movie is take the evildoer and what is the, the simplest, most straightforward way to start punching them. Right, right. Because if you're not with the Nazis, how can you punch them? You're right. Get yeah. to Nazis. <laughs> if a Nazi is punched in the forest and no one's around to see it, does does it hurt? Yeah, doesn't, I don't know. Does certainly doesn't matter. All right. <laughs> the the other element that I think uh, is clear here is that the screenwriters are using their own tools to craft a way for. I mean, it's that screenwriting shorthand of having him say this this short line that feels very, very natural for the character to say it has a comic book feel like it works for in all of the different contexts that it's being used in. And for the from the writer's perspective, it's it's moving us into the story without having to sit through this whole expository scene where now they're putting their plan into place, right? He has a clever line, and now that sets us up for, okay, now we are going to go see uh, see what happens. Again, that's also really fulfilling to not get that expository scene that we would see anyway, right? You don't have to explain what you're going to do and then show it. You just skip it. You know, you cut the character off and have, um, you know, somebody like this, you know, put this little quip in and then just get to it. Yeah, exactly. Now, personally, I do feel like the whole idea of knocking on the front door, I feel like that is a little bit of a trope. Like, I feel like I've heard it a number of times, like, oh, let's just knock on their front door. Uh, you know, it it plays okay. I just feel like it is one of those things that has been said a number of times in films. But what did it start getting said in the 40s? <laughs> because then it's then are it's you, like the you, first time. Are you wondering if retroactively because yeah. of the, the time frame this takes place? <laughs> yes, Andy, I wow. am. Also, it's funny just because you know what you picture as the front door when you see what the front door actually is. Right, it is not what you would have pictured as the front door. So it's, right. you know, it's much larger and, and more menacing. And likewise, the knock is not exactly yes. you know, <laughs> both of those things. Yes. To your point. Um, I also, we should point out, this is really um, setting up very, an, you know, a, a common element in screenwriting where it's a ticking clock. And now we've established that there is a clock that started ticking. We have less than 24 hours before Red Skull unleashes his madness on the world. And so that's kind of, the time frame here, and um, I well, we'll talk about the date here in a second, but uh, that is going to come into play as as important here in a moment. But before that, I just want to say uh, two last things: Dominic Cooper, possibly his worst accent work in the entire film. It is so bad in this scene; he's he's terrible. I don't know if either of you two picked up on his accent work here, but um, I don't. I feel like you might be too hard on dominic cooper or <laughs> he's done great I'm before too easy or, yeah yeah maybe <laughs> i typically have a hard time with accents yeah i did he's not. working with powers beyond our capabilities is that it is that the problem our yeah, he really and, swallows and, it yeah and most of his tongue <laughs> uh the other note i had was uh you know to your point pete the jib move um when steve says his why not it's a fantastic uh shot reverse shot that we have of the jib pulling backward 
it's a jib is basically just an arm that you can have the camera on and then you can roll it so it's in positions where you couldn't otherwise have it and so it's over the tabletop and it's pulling directly back towards steve so you get like this this movement kind of as the camera moves back towards steve revealing everybody sitting around the table and then you get the reverse shot exactly 180 degrees now we're looking at steve and we're pushing in on him as he says that's exactly what we're going to do fantastic use of camera uh, structured by uh, you know Johnston and his cinematographer, I just I I love seeing well crafted moments like this in a film. Me too. Me too. All right. Well, with that, a- any last thoughts about anything up to this point, or should we uh, head out to the forest? Yeah, since this is probably the only minute that I'm going to be talking about with you guys that features Dominic Cooper. Um, and this is a Joe Johnston film and the fact that Howard Stark is based on Howard Hughes. And in Johnston's previous film, The Rocketeer, Howard Hughes featured as a character in it. I just wanted to point that out. I, I think that's so cool. Just the way that, um, the, the, you know, the director's previous work is sort of influencing his current work, uh, through these, you know, six degrees of separation. Isn't that funny? That's awesome. I had forgotten that uh, that Hughes pops up as a character in that, played by uh, good old Terry O'Quinn from um, Lost is where I always picture him, but Millennium. <laughs> so, Millennium. Millennium. Oh, there you go. I know some people jump to the stepfather <laughs> as, <laughs> as their source of uh, his projects. But um, uh, yeah, it's, you know, well, that's something with Johnston that I think his storytelling sensibilities I don't know if it's because his connection to Lucas and Spielberg and their world and Raiders and all of those sorts of films, like the adventure films, but he seems to really tap into that type of storytelling uh, exceptionally well. Uh, are you a Johnston fan? I, I've enjoyed his his work. I mean, he doesn't, you know, The Rocketeer is really the only other thing that um, I um, know off the top of my head. I, I, I might have seen Indian in the co- uh, cupboard or maybe that was Frank Oz, actually. He did, uh, if you saw October Sky, he did that one. Oh, yes, of course, right. And then he, uh, early on in his career, he did Honey, I Shrunk the Kids. He did the first Jumanji film um, back when, uh, before they did the reboot. The, the reboot? Yeah. yeah. A, a reboot slash sequel. It's a rebookal. Um, he did Jurassic Park 3, Hidalgo, and The Wolfman. Oh, that's right. Yeah, I did. I did uh, review The Wolfman for one of my 31 Days of Horror. That was an interesting uh, take on that. And again, sort of that 1940s style. I I tend to gravitate towards his period pieces, I guess. This Rocketeer. So I I, I think that he's an interesting filmmaker and and, uh, not a very robust uh, filmography, but certainly there is a style that I think that he has. Mm -hmm, True. Um, all right. Well, we're heading outside. We have another, it feels kind of like the start of the montage we had earlier with Steve getting ready because now he's getting himself ready again to hop onto his motorcycle. This is, in fact, February 5th, 1945. This is going to be the last day that Steve is conscious <laughs> in our film until present day, uh, at the time the film was released. Uh, this is the moment that we have where, uh, where Steve is starting the day taken on hydra and will end uh frozen in the arctic so so, so it's kind of the longest day <laughs> wow there you go <laughs> the longest day look at that 
Um, all right. Steve and his motorcycle. I don't know if we have a lot to say here because we're just at the very beginning of this uh, of this scene as he kind of starts his motorcycle, then races through the forest, and then we cut to uh, a close-up of him as he's racing along. Uh, thoughts on this? Do you want to save the forest conversation for next time? What do you both... Uh, what do you both think? Forest conversation for next time, but yeah. I will say that uh, Steve Rogers and his motorcycle are a very important part of my Captain America fandom, going back all the way to the Reb Brown 1979 made-for-TV <laughs> Captain America movies where he's riding his BMX-looking bike, but he puts the shield on the front of the bike in those late 70s TV movies, and I thought that was amazing. And there is a guy in Maryland who cosplay. I, I mean, I don't know if he cosplays for charity or something, but he dresses up like Captain America, or he, at least he has a motorcycle helmet that is a Captain America motorcycle helmet and has a paint scheme on his motorcycle that is Captain America. And I've seen him cruising up and down the freeways here. And and is the shield like the, the, op- the translucent plexi thing that? He did not have a shield. The... No, yeah, he did not have a shield. Oh, no, like... you know, he might have had his backpack decked out like a shield. How would they something. possibly know he was Captain America without that shield, Jay? Mm, that is true. <laughs> You're just um, guessing. It's just another guy in spandex. Well, it, yeah, that's true. It could have been John Walker or right, right. the Patriot <laughs> right. or any number of other that's right. Star-Spangled themed characters. You're, you are correct that's right. there. That's, right. yeah. that's amazing. <laughs> Just uh, the wings on the helmet. That's what it was. That's <laughs> what it was. We talked about that movie in our uh, hiatus as a member bonus episode. And uh, yeah, there was it was definitely an interesting film to look at. We talked about that. And then the the 1990 uh, the 1991. Yeah, well. I, I got to say, 10 year old me loved those Captain America <laughs> movies and the Spider-Man uh, live action stuff that with Nicholas Hammond from the late 70s. That was that was so much fun. Yeah, yeah. Nowadays, eh, you know, mm. not so much, but back then, for sure. Yeah. All right. Well, let's wrap it up today. We'll come back tomorrow with more talk about forests and motorcycle chases and all that good stuff. So, uh, Jay, tell everybody again about uh, where they can track you down on the interwebs. Well, retrozap.com is the best place. That's where all my podcasts are. That's where all my written material is. Pretty much every other article that comes up is probably something I've worked on there. Um, but I'd love everybody, if, if you're into Marvel movies and you like knowing where things were filmed, if you like filmmaking kind of stuff, come check me out at mculocationscout.com. I've got all sorts of, uh, fun stuff over there. Lots of, I, I, I say, and this is just me speaking here, but I do have the most complete, uh, filming locations for all the Marvel cinematic filming, uh, or for all the Marvel cinematic movies. Um, you're not going to find, a more complete locations uh, list unless somebody stole it from me. Outstanding flex. Absolutely. <laughs> and I use your site regularly on on this show. Since Iron Man, really, I've been using your site yeah. to find all these locations. It's been fantastic. Fantastic. Well, thanks so much, Jay. Certainly appreciate it. And remember, everybody, you can learn more about our show and uh, find our socials, learn more about membership, all that good stuff at marvelmovieminute.com. And that's it. So, Pete, thanks as always. You're welcome, Andy. That was my Dominic Cooper, if you didn't. (laughs) I'm glad you clarified that. (laughs) (laughs) I just thought you might have suddenly had a few too many drinks. uh, 
A lot of people will listen to those little things and think those are totally improvised. But you should know, I wrote down, swallow my own tongue as my closer. (laughs) Well, success. Check that one off your list. Until next time, true believers. Marvel Movie Minute is a production of True Story FM. Engineering by Andy Nelson. This season's music is Spread the News by Anthony Vega. And this season's show art is by Winston Yabo. Find the show at truestory.fm. And if your podcast app allows ratings and reviews, consider doing that for this show.